Well, good afternoon once again. Today we're starting the second half of Jonah and basically restarting the book, kind of. So to quickly recap, uh, so far God has commanded Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh and prophesy against them, against that city. But instead, Jonah disobeyed. He fled to Joppa and set sail for Tarshish. But God wouldn't allow his prophet to escape. He sent a great wind upon the sea, which caused a great storm, and eventually ended up with Jonah being thrown into the sea and swallowed by a great fish. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Jonah's prayer from the belly of that fish, and we saw that while it contained good theology, it lacked any sense of repentance on the part of the disobedient prophet. Nevertheless, out of his sheer mercy, God caused the fish to spew Jonah up onto dry land. The Lord restored his life to him, rescuing him from the pit of death. And that's where we pick up our story today. So just for a bit of that context, I'll read starting in Jonah 2.10, and we'll read through the first part of verse 3 of chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by the patience and comfort of your Holy Spirit, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. If I'm ever reinstated, I won't need a third chance, believe me. So said Pete Rose in a 2014 interview. Now, I'm not really a baseball guy, but I do know the name Pete Rose. Uh, If you don't, he was a player and a manager uh, from like the 1960s through the 80s, and he was pretty great. Again, I'm not a baseball guy, but he's the all-time leader in hits, singles, and outs for Major League Baseball, and that seems pretty good. Uh, He won three World Series. He was a 17-time All-Star, but he also had a gambling problem which a lot of players do, but the the issue with him is that he bet on baseball games that he played in and that he managed for, which is a big-time no-no. So because of that misconduct, he's essentially been banned from any function related to professional baseball. And it was in that context that he said the words I read just a moment ago. If I'm ever reinstated, I won't need a third chance. Believe me. So he has said... If he's given a second chance, he's going to do better. He resolves to do better than the first time. And I wonder if Jonah's attitude is going to be the same. He's been given a second chance, right? He was in the belly of the fish at the door of death, but the Lord caused the fish to spit him back up onto the dry land. So we'll have to see if Jonah is determined not to need a third chance. But having been to hell and back, almost literally, there's no way he could be exactly the same as he was the first time the word of the Lord came to him. We think. So let's see what Jonah does. 
will the seaweed-draped, vomit-stained, disobedient prophet be a little more receptive to the word of the Lord this time around? Well, you probably noticed chapter 3 begins almost exactly the same way that chapter 1 did. Really, the only difference with the first verse here is that the words, the second time, have replaced the name of Jonah's father. And this is something we'll see a lot from now on as we continue through the book of Jonah. The way the author has written the book, the second half, chapters 3 and 4, have a lot of parallels with the first two chapters. We'll be able to compare whatever we're examining in chapters 3 and 4 to very similar scenes from the first half of the book. And they mirror each other, but the mirror is a little bit smudged. So we'll see a lot of things that look the same, but those similarities really serve to highlight the differences that the author introduces. Those are the keys. Some of those differences are subtle. Some of them are more obvious. But in any case, all of the differences are significant, and they help us understand exactly what this story is about. So here we have a difference with the word of the Lord coming for a second time. As if we needed it, right? This whole story so far has been about how Jonah didn't obey the first time. But nevertheless, the author reminds us that the first time the word of the Lord came to Jonah, he didn't obey. So he points out a second time the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, which is really surprising because Jonah's the only prophet who's given his assignment twice by the Lord because of prior disobedience. The only prophet in the Bible. This would have caught the original audience off guard, of course. They would have expected something more like uh, this kind of crazy story that we find in 1 Kings 13, where a prophet is killed for his disobedience to the Lord. And I'll go ahead and read that short story uh, now. This is 1 Kings 13, 20 through 26. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah. This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat or drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your ancestors. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. And as he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was left lying on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. Some people who passed by saw the body lying there with the lion standing beside the body. And they went and reported it in the city where the old prophet lived. When the prophet who had brought him back from his journey heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion, which has mauled him and killed him as the word of the Lord had warned him. So that's the normal kind of thing that happens when a prophet disobeys the direct command of the Lord. So when the audience heard the scene that we covered a couple weeks ago, that the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, they wouldn't have thought, oh, he's rescuing Jonah. He's he's saving him from drowning. They would have thought he was sent for the same reason that this lion was sent, to kill Jonah, to dispatch of the disobedient man of God. But to their surprise and to our surprise, that's not what happens to Jonah. Yahweh shows him mercy. And thus, here, on the dry land, after being spit out by the fish, the story just kind of starts over again. And we're left wondering, as the word of the Lord comes again for the second time, 
Will Jonah's second chance be round two of disobedience and judgment, or will he change his ways? Verse one doesn't really give us any clues, just like the beginning of the book. There's no context to the word of the Lord coming. We don't know where Jonah has been deposited by the fish. We don't know how far he is from Nineveh. We don't know how much time passed before the word of the Lord came. All we know is that he's back on dry land, and again, the word of the Lord comes to him, telling him what to do. But that lack of context is no problem. We've seen throughout this series that we're dealing with a clever author here. Being given no background information between the the vomiting and the word of the Lord coming allows the word itself to be the star of this scene. Against the blank backdrop of no context, the word can shine even brighter. And what is that word? Well, we read it in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So, maybe surprising to us, Yahweh doesn't mention anything that's happened in the first two chapters. He doesn't rebuke Jonah for his sin. He doesn't encourage him to make good on that promise he had made in the belly of the fish to go to the temple and make sacrifices. He simply reissues the original command with a few subtle differences. The first small difference from chapter 1 is that instead of the preposition against, God uses to. Now, if you're looking down at the translation we read at the beginning, or maybe one of uh, several other translations, you may not see that difference. It's often translated as against, even here in chapter 3. But the word is different in Hebrew, and it seems that the author is using a different word here to make this call stand out from the original call in chapter 1. So again, here in chapter 3, Jonah is to call out to Nineveh rather than against Nineveh, which sort of changes the sense of God's command from go and condemn the city to proclaim to it. It's more neutral. It's less confrontational, which might suggest to us that maybe Jonah's message is not one entirely of judgment. Maybe there will be an opportunity for mercy for the Ninevites, just like the mercy Jonah has experienced. But just as before, the author doesn't give us the exact words Jonah is to use. We never hear anything like, thus says the Lord to the city of Nineveh, and we never hear exactly what words the Lord tells Jonah to use. Though, there's another difference with the second command. Um, There's no reason given. You'll remember in chapter 1, Yahweh cited Nineveh's evil as the cause of Jonah's call. He said, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But here he simply says, call out to Nineveh the message that I tell you. Which doesn't necessarily mean the reason for Jonah's trip has changed. Instead, the author is choosing to emphasize Yahweh's control over this whole mission, this whole situation, and the message Jonah is bringing. Which leads us right into the third difference here which is that it's made clear to Jonah that he's not allowed to speak from the heart. The words, the message that I tell you, clearly imply that Jonah should speak exactly the words that Yahweh gives him, even though we're not told what those words are. He's not at liberty to add anything or take anything away from God's word. He's only allowed to proclaim to the Ninevites exactly the words that the Lord tells him to proclaim. So, The command has been reissued with a few slight differences in God's mercy. Jonah has been restored to life, 
and restored to his prophetic office, and the commission is given again. And then in the rest of the scene, we see Jonah's response. And having heard everything that's happened in chapters 1 and 2, we might be surprised to read verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. So the Jonah we see here in scene 4 does seem different from the Jonah in scene 1. You might remember that in chapter 1, even though Jonah's disobedience is kind of the main thing, that's what stood out, that's what's memorable, that's what drove the rest of the action, he was 33% obedient. Yahweh told him to arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it, and he did the first command. He arose, but then he went the opposite direction. Here we see his obedience increasing. He's now at 67%. Yahweh tells him to arise, go to Nineveh, and call out to it, and he does the first two. At least he starts to. The audience has waited a long time to hear the words, according to the word of the Lord. And finally they come 26 verses after we expected them to come. And strangely, Jonah doesn't offer any verbal objections. Just as his disobedience to the first call was silent, here his obedience is silent. Which again is strange because... He was so vehemently opposed to obeying this commission the first time around, but now he doesn't even argue with the Lord. He obeys without any protestation at all. But, like I said, he's only 67% obedient so far. He's headed to Nineveh. We'll, We'll have to wait and see if he obeys that third command when he gets there. But at least to some degree, we can see here that the will of Jonah is in conformity with the word of the Lord that has come to him. And based on what the narrator provides us at this point, it seems like Jonah is reformed. But with what he doesn't provide us, we can see there are still pieces missing. Because just like the last scene, nowhere in this scene do we see any signs of repentance. Or see Jonah admit that he has done anything wrong. Or see him exhibit some kind of new humility. So we're left with the question, without any signs of repentance or humility, why is he obeying? The journey to Nineveh was not an easy one, so it was probably hundreds of miles through desert roads on foot. So why is he going? Well, maybe he realized he's powerless in the face of God, the God who pursued him to the depths of the sea and brought him back and reissued this command to him. So maybe he's simply joylessly acquiescing to the divine will and and putting his hands up recognizing that God is the one who's in charge. Maybe he sets off for Nineveh with the hope that the Ninevites will be wiped out. He's just experienced judgment from God, and maybe he hopes that if he goes to Nineveh and proclaims this message and they don't repent, they'll at least be you know, punished for that, and he would enjoy that as an Israelite, seeing his enemies wiped out by the Lord. Or perhaps Jonah goes to Nineveh because his faith has been renewed. Maybe he understood God's mercy in saving him from death, the death that he rightly deserved. But as I've said many times before, the author likes to wait to give us answers. We'll have to keep reading and get some more information in order to answer the question of Jonah's obedience here. But for now, we come to the end of the scene, and again, we must ask ourselves, what can we learn from this inspired true story of Jonah? And again, as with each week so far, we see the sovereignty of God on display. 
What Yahweh commands and says and does will eventually accomplish his will. Even if it's not accomplished right away, as the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, tells him what to do and he disobeys, it will be fulfilled in time, as we see here in chapter 3. God will not be thwarted. He is sovereign, and the author keeps on reminding us of that as he tells this story. Second, we must continue to ask the central question, what is Jonah teaching us about Jesus? In this scene, God calls Jonah to prophesy to Nineveh for a second time. Having read the story before, we in this room know that Jonah's obedience to this second call, his proclamation to the Ninevites, will result in their repentance. So we can put the pieces together and see that it was God's will to spare Nineveh from his judgment. Even this nation that was hostile to Israel, that would one day oppress Israel, God has determined that his name will be known throughout the whole earth and that his word will come to Nineveh through his prophet Jonah. But Jonah is reluctant. For whatever reason, he's unwilling to go where the Lord sends him. And even after his obedience here that we saw today in chapter 3, we're still not sure what he's thinking or if he's willing. He might still be reluctant in his heart, even if he's going uh, outwardly and obeying. But in any case, all of this is just a shadow of the global salvation God had always planned to accomplish. His kingdom, his heavenly kingdom, will extend beyond Israel to the whole world. And we see that here, shadowed in the book of Jonah, as well as several other places in the Old Testament. God is concerned for distant and wicked peoples. He seeks reconciliation with everything that he has created. But until the coming of Christ, that reconciliation could only come in the form of types and shadows and pictures and foretastes. The fullness of global salvation could only come with the coming of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ was sent to Israel for the salvation of the whole world. Not only would he save his own people despite their rejection of him, he would save their oppressors and their enemies too. In fact, Jesus died in order to save anyone who would come to him in faith, no matter what land he or she is from. There will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in the new creation because Jesus, the greater Jonah, was obedient to his commission, and he wasn't reluctant to obey. He descended to earth not only to bring the message of salvation, but to accomplish salvation itself, a salvation that is in no way restricted geographically. So if you haven't already this afternoon, trust in the Lord Jesus. Believe in him. He calls out to you, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within him. And if you have trusted in Christ, come to the fountain again. Drink deeply of the fresh, ever-flowing water of life we find in our Savior and rejoice with one another that we are beneficiaries of a global salvation. And praise him for giving us many brothers and sisters who don't come from the same place that we come from, but who belong in the same place that we do, which is with Jesus, in his city, the eternal city, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the place we can all call home. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word, for the word you caused to come to us each and every Lord's Day through the ministry of your servants 
and through the power of your Holy Spirit. May it convict us, correct us, comfort us, and encourage us even today. And above all, we thank you for the word you caused to come to us on earth, the incarnated God, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was not reluctant to complete his task, but that he lived and died and rose again for us willingly and joyfully and perfectly. And not only for us gathered here this morning, but for all your people across the world, each and every person who comes to him. Remember us, to remind us to pray vigilantly that many more from all nations will come into your kingdom, that your kingdom might grow. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.